You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 67. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am your host, Chris Lester, and I am here in the studio, virtually, with author, podcaster, historical reenactor, and all-around cool person, Katie Brisky. Hi! Actually, it feels like we're in the studio because I can see you, you can see me, it's all good. (laughs) (laughs) So, I am with Katie today because... She's got a podcast that is debuting tomorrow called Six Stories Told at Night. And if you're listening to this on the podcast feed, you are about to hear the promo for it, right? Once upon a time, there was a girl who lived in a little village far away. I've got this friend, Joelle, right? Sam, I know how to get there. It just takes the right story, that's all. Once upon a time, I'm looking for my friend. Getting to Elfland isn't the same as getting into Elfland. You must tell me a story. One which I have never heard before. Elfland. Fairy. Avalon. Tirnanog. When you read enough fairy tales, you learn how things work. When you are ready. Six stories told at night. Part audio drama, part storytelling, all Canadian fairy tales. Find out more at ktbrisky.com. That's K-T-B-R-Y-S-K-I dot com. For those of you who are with us live, thank you for joining us. And Katie, can you just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your new show? Uh, sure. Well, you gave me a really nice introduction. I am all of these things. Author, podcaster, historian, and Six Stories Told at Night uses all of these different parts of my life. It's part audio drama and part audio book in a lot of ways. It's a weird little hybrid form. It's a one-woman show, and I've taken five traditional Canadian fairy tales and interwoven them within a larger framing narrative. Sam's best friend, Joelle, has stumbled into the realm of fairy, and the only way to get her back is to tell them a story they've never heard before. Hence, my traditional Canadian folktales coming into play. Them being the fairies. Yes. Yeah. Cool. So, given that this is based so heavily in traditional Canadian fairy tales, Mm. what sort of research did it take to pull this book together, and how did you get started with it? Uh, Well, I got started simply by going into Google and saying traditional Canadian folktales. It's a good way to start, honestly, because it gives you, it does give you a starting point. So once I kind of had a list of some folklore figures I wanted to follow up with, then you can go a bit deeper. So I was going into things like Mm archive.org. They've got a lot of really old digitized books. So if you're looking for books from the 19th century, say, like really old collections of folktales or really old novels, it's a good place to access them, especially if, you're, if you don't happen to live in, say, a university town where they've got the archives at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. I read a ton. Like, I was going to the library and just, honestly, I cleaned out the children's section a couple of times. Because <laughs> I have these books of, like, Canadian wonder tales or tales told in Canadian winters and these sorts of things. And I know a couple of oral storytellers as well. So I was chatting with them like, hey, have you heard of this folklore figure? What do you know about them? What's the story that you tell? Um, So I think for each of the stories that I ended up presenting, I probably got through at least half a dozen different versions of each one. 
Nice. So is there a lot of variety then in how these fairy tales get passed down? A lot of people putting their own spin on things? Absolutely. Every storyteller is going to put their own spin on something. And I do too, which is explicitly addressed in the podcast itself. Our our narrator character says, yeah, this is the story that my friend gave me. Um, This is how I'm tweaking it to suit my own purposes. You tend to find certain elements remaining more or less the same, but then there can also be certain things that are thrown in and you can, you can track them back to a, a specific storyteller sometimes. Like mm-hmm. one of my, my friends, Canadian author and storyteller, Mahri Bia Bido, uh, who's up in Ottawa, she told me about a folklore figure from Quebec called La Corriveau. And La Corriveau was a woman who was hanged for murdering her husband and her body was strung up in this cage. And in Marie's version of the story, there's a spike in the cage. Mm. So if she ever tries to sit down. Yeah. Yeah. Which I hadn't seen in any other version. And she's like, yeah, my grandma told me that. Nice. <laughs> so it might not be real. I'm like, no, no, no. But see, that's perfect. Because your grandma gave that to you. You gave that to me. And I love it so much. I'm going to use it now. And that makes it real. I mean, this is this is a consensus reality anyway. So well, it keeps them alive. Right. And I think this is another thing with fairy tales is that every fairy tale retelling is a, a product of the culture and time that retells it. That's true even for Disney fairy tales, if you think about it. They take a lot of flack, but something like Cinderella actually tells us a lot about the 1950s, because that's the time in which that particular retelling was produced. Right, right. And you can similarly look at a more recent Disney production like Brave and say, oh, wow, look how the culture changed. That's a perfect example, Yeah. Why do fairy stories still matter? That's a big question. Um, I think in a lot of ways, they form the building blocks of a lot of our other stories. Um, Like if you're looking at things like the hero pattern, which a lot of people, again, love to to give flack, but it's, it's kind of written into the DNA, a lot of the stories that we tell. Even if you're subverting it, it still exerts an influence. And also I think fairy tales speak to a very dark and primal part of us. Like there's a lot of imagery like going into the woods, like this kind of idea of dying and being reborn you see happening in a lot of fairy tales. Mm -hmm. I think it speaks to the way that we perceive the world and the way that we make sense of the world through stories. And often with, especially with a lot of the early fairy tales, that's precisely what they're doing. Is there a way to try and make sense of the world around us? Mm -hmm. I mean, they have stuck around for a reason, right? And I think it's because they do touch something very deep within us psychologically. What's the coolest little fact or little piece of story that you encountered in your research that you hadn't known about before you went looking for this book? Okay, so the first story, actually, in Six Stories Told at Night is about a character named Banam Setter. Um, so literally, man of seven hours, so from Quebec. And he is essentially the Quebecois boogeyman. So mm. he steals away little children out uh, past seven o'clock. There is a theory that the name Bonhomme Setter is actually a very garbled translation of the English word bone setter. Ooh. Bone setter mm-hmm. with the French accent, Bonhomme Setter. Because <laughs> the bone setter was the guy where if your bones were broken, he'd come and he'd fix them back into place, mm-hmm. which could be super painful. So imagine if you're, say, a kid. And like your dad's broken his arm farming or whatever. And this bone setter comes with like his bag of medical tools. And it's like done on your kitchen table because it's 1700. And there's a lot of blood and pain and screaming likely happening in the evening time. (laughs) I'm like, I really like that. Like this 
connection between this kind of boogeyman figure and then bones and setting bones and medical instruments. Um, I still want to write a story that takes more of that view of things. But for me, that was like, oh, wait, bone setter, bonhomme setter. Oh. <laughs> so where did all of these stories come from? Were all of them from Quebec or did you go to different parts of uh, Canadian folklore, different nationalities? Most of them are, are Quebecois. Yeah. The Wendigo is the one story that's kind of a Quebecois native Canadian fusion. Mm-hmm. The Wendigo was a cannibal spirit. Right. So essentially, they, they think it started as a way to uh, reinforce the cannibalism taboo. Mm-hmm. Because people who become cannibals in the really harsh winter times would then become Wendigo, like these horrible, perpetually hungry ice spirits. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing was, when the French came and colonized, the Wendigo got mixed in with a lot of French werewolf stories to create this kind of weird hybrid of both creature. So that's the only one that's not completely French-Canadian influenced. But the majority of them... Yeah, from Quebec. Hmm. Are the uh, Quebecois just like more extensive, elaborate storytellers than the English or Scottish settlers of Canada? Or did they just, their stories stuck around or what happened? I found it easier to find stories that had actually originated in Quebec. I'm Hmm. sure, like especially in Eastern Canada, I'm sure that those stories exist there too. It was just easier to find the French Canadian ones. Largely, I suspect, because they're kind of this French oasis in the rest of the country, we're all Anglophone. So they've really done a lot to preserve and pass that oral tradition down. So it was easier to find. Also, the question had been posed to me actually while I was doing my MFA at some point. Like, what do you think that truly Canadian fantasy would look like? (laughs) Like fantasy not derived from some Western Europeaners, but like actual Canadian fantasy. My answer was, I don't know. I guess I'll find out. But I thought that French Canada was a good place to start because in a lot of ways, it is such a synthesis of the cultures that made up a lot of Canada's early history, which is French, English, and then Native Canadian. Right. Um, so I was like, well, this is, this is a good starting place for one possible answer to that question of what is Canadian fantasy? What are Canadian fairy tales? So this, this book, this, is it going to be a book or is it no, it's, a podcast? No, it's purely a podcast. It absolutely must be performed aloud. Okay. And that makes sense, given that it grows out of the oral tradition. Absolutely, Uh, 100%. So this came from your MFA then? Sort of, yeah. I've been exploring the question in a lot of different ways. I've actually done quite well with my Canadian content stuff. I've actually sold another story about La Corriveau, uh, the woman in the cage, to Strange Horizons. My Wendigo story, a different Wendigo story, won the Toronto Star Contest. So people seem to dig Canada. So that question from my MFA definitely started me on the path. But more, it was just like a lot of fiction that authors write. I had characters in my head that wouldn't go away. And this was the story that fit them. Cool. Your uh, website mentions that your friend Blythe Haynes was a vocal talent on this, but you also said it's a one-woman show. So what is Blythe doing on this? Everything. (laughs) Yeah, so she is the voice talent in this. It's all her. Oh, Um, okay. It's all her. So it's, it's like an oral storytelling showcase in a lot of ways. So when you go to see an oral storytelling show, they just do all of the voices. But it's different than, say, a dynamic read in an audiobook. And this was something that she found, actually, because she also did a dynamic read of my novel Heart Stealer for me. And she was doing all the voices and all the different accents. But with this, she was saying, no, I was, I was treating it as though I were on stage. It's, it's a different energy and a different delivery when it's a performance instead of a reading. But yeah, she she does do all of the voices. 
all of them. In though the the framing of she is still this one character telling all of these stories. So it's real it's stories within stories within stories, told by one character, played by Blythe. That's cool. Was I think there so. any, Thank you. Um, was there any any like inspiration for this podcast from the Cat Howard story that you and Blythe read for the Brabblecast last year, All Our Past Places? Which is I wondered if anyone, yeah. It's traveling into the underworld and getting trapped there. Cat Howard is either my soulmate or my nemesis. <laughs> I haven't quite decided yet. There are an eerie amount of coincidences between us, including one that I will get into in a minute. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think in some ways it's it's a response to all of our past places. I mean, part of the reason that Blythe and I were asked to do that was because it was a very touching story about friendship, mm-hmm. um, like very close friends. And Brian's like, you two are very touching, very close friends. Off you go. <laughs> so in some ways, like the story had already been starting to form. And that story kind of showed me a way that it could be done. And then like, just like with thorough storytelling, I then put my own spin on it. Of course. And expanded it. I really want to meet Kat one day, actually, just to see if we are, in fact, the same person. Because <laughs> sometimes I wonder if one of us is having blackouts. Uh, her debut <laughs> novel, no, it's, it's actually, it's frightening at times. We like the same obscure composers. Her name's Kat. My name's Katie. We've been taught by the same people. We're both students of Jim Kelly. And if I'm reading between the lines on her blog, right, he actually gave her some of the same comments he's given me. And in her debut novel, Roses and Rot... It's at an artist colony and the main character is writing a novel. And I read it like the, the paragraph that summarizes, and my novel was about this. It's like, oh, that's the plot of six stories in a nutshell. That's fine. <laughs> so Kat Howard, if you're listening, look me up because <laughs> I need to chat. I think we might be best friends. <laughs> that's ktbrisky at gmail.com. <laughs> What advice would you give to fantasy authors who want to incorporate real-world history, myths, or legends into their storytelling? Read as many different versions as you can, except that there is no one true version. And take what works for you. And like, keep an open mind, I guess, is a, a large part of it. Know that each, as I said, retelling is going to be a, very, a product of its very specific time and place. That doesn't necessarily invalidate it any more than it raises it above the others. I guess, yeah. Find as many different versions as you can and know that they're all equally valid. That makes sense. I've got another question for you, Katie. So this podcast is being sponsored by the Ontario Arts Council. That's pretty freaking cool. Isn't it? (laughs) How did that happen? I wanted to pay Blythe properly, and I figured I'd have more luck asking the government to give me money than strangers on the internet. That's how it happens. Yeah, it it did come from a very mercenary thing of, I want us to both take home a paycheck from this. And I thought with the product that we had, it would actually be up the Art Council's alley, because a lot of their mandate is celebrating and diffusing Canadian cultural heritage. That's D-I-F-F, not defusing like a bomb, right? Yes, yes. Spreading, spreading abroad. All sorts of Canadian (laughs) culture for everybody. And I figured that the the story that we ended up with, again, it's like celebrating Canadian fairy tales, French Canadian fairy tales, it's just like another box to tick off. And also because it's got that framing story, it's looking at some of modern day Canada as well. And what I love about podcasting is that it's such an accessible medium. Like if you've got a web connection, you can listen to a podcast. So unlike, say, a stage play that we would likely have to do in Toronto and that only so many people are going to get to see... Anyone in the world could listen to this Canadian content. So I loved this idea of having a Canadian voice 
kind of on the global stage. And I thought they would too. And they did. Yay. Yay. Is this the first time that they have ever sponsored a podcast? I don't know. I've been asking around. As far as I know, I'm the only at least independent fantasy podcaster who's gotten government funding. Granted, most of the podcasters I know are Americans. Right. But, oh, someone has asked a question. Yes. So Noble Bear asks, how do you know what's important to focus on and what isn't so you don't have to read an entire library? Well, if, say, you're looking at some of the better-known stories, they do oftentimes come with historiography. So basically a summary of what other people have researched and what they have said about it. So it will almost give you, like, uh, very brief summaries of other articles. You can either say, that guy sounds like a jerk, and not read his book. <laughs> or say, well, that, that one sounds like it could be useful to me. And as well, I find as you start going down, you yourself will start to find characters or stories that interest you. I'm like, I didn't know about Bonhomme Satter until I just stumbled in my very wide net of traditional Canadian folklore. And then once I'd come across one version of the story and it had tickled that feeling inside of me, (laughs) that sounds wrong, but that's fine. Um, Then I was able to drill down and and it's one of these things too, where the more you research into a field, the narrower that field gets, like you can get down some real rabbit holes that way. It's basically start broad, you'll find stuff and secondary sources are good too for kind of summarizing other editions and other translations of things. Cool. So what's next for you after six stories? What are you working on? working on rewrites to the novel that I wrote earlier this year. So it has nothing to do with Canada, which is fine. I do other things too. So that one, like it, it needs a bit of work. But once that's done, I'd like to send it out for agenting, hopefully. And I continue to crank out short fiction. That's been a big focus of mine this year, is starting to crack some of these pro markets. I have the piece about La Corrigo going to Strange Horizons. Apex picked up a piece of mine earlier about unicorns. No, they're terrifying now. You'll hate them. <laughs> I've ruined them. And I'm not Aww. sorry. Yeah, so it's it's more of the same, more of the novels and more of the short fiction. And, you know, frolicking with Blythe at our museum, educating mm-hmm. people about 19th century history through theater. It's all good. Which was the inspiration for Coxwood <laughs> History Fun Park. It sure was. <laughs> Yeah, that was fun. That was like a year ago now. Um, Yeah, I think everyone now at Black Creek has heard about Coxwood. Like, I think even my boss heard it, though she won't admit it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fine if we don't talk about it. It'll just be a silent understanding. The first rule of Coxwood is you don't talk about (laughs) Coxwood. You don't talk about Coxwood at the pseudo Coxwood. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and that's that's in itself almost a very different type of research. Where with you, when you live with something for so long and you just know it to your bones, Mm -hmm. which kind of goes into this other question from Noble Bear: How do you approach structuring or planning out your stories? I wish I had a better answer for this. Uh, I am a loose outliner, so I don't need to have every scene plotted out and every T crossed and I dotted before I start writing, but I like to have a roadmap of where I'm going. Honestly, I find it helpful to think about plot outlines as almost like a hat rack or a coat rack. So usually I know the beginning, or at least I know the first line, and usually I have some kind of idea of the ending. And then if I think about that long enough, I get the middle, and then it's almost, maybe it's more like a rope bridge, just figuring out what points will get us from that beginning to this middle and then from the middle to the end. I tend to write really weird non-linear stuff. <laughs> so I'm like structure 
I don't know. <laughs> I just write stuff and then it's kind of cool at the end. But with six stories, actually, it was challenging because it is this story that balances all of these narrative levels at once. Like it's a bizarre structure. And I don't think I could have pulled it off if I didn't have such a talented actress. Like this is why I'm like, no, it has to be performed aloud because you need that actor to be guiding you through the different levels. How I approached six stories as a whole, it was, it was looking at this fairy tale structure. There is definitely a defined pattern, like the call to adventure, approaching the threshold, like that point of no return that commits you then to the adventure. Mm -hmm. um, having some kind of threshold guardian, the descent into the woods is kind of the rebirth and resurrection in the darkness. There was one character that I added specifically because I realized, oh, wait, I don't have this element yet. That's why the story isn't working. That's uh -huh. why something feels unbalanced is because I don't have this. So this yeah. is the Joseph Campbell hero's journey we're talking about, right? Yeah. Theodora Goss, actually, who is a former teacher of mine at Stone Coast, also does a really interesting look at the heroine's journey, mm. which is slightly different. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, because you're looking at different experiences in life, especially, again, if you're looking towards these very, very early retellings of fairy tales. So you can find her website is um, www.theodoragoss.com. And um, yeah, she's got like a whole section about her own fairy tale scholarship. That's well worth a read if you're interested in this sort of thing. Cool. Okay, so Michael's got his questions for Yay! us. The first one is, what turned you towards the macabre, or is this a comedian <laughs> thing? Michael, my soul is just dark and bitter, like my beer. <laughs> That's why. I don't know what turned me towards the macabre. I'm actually not a macabre kind of person. I'm actually fairly cheerful and sunny in my everyday life. Maybe that's why. Maybe it just needs an outlet, this hidden darkness. Well, that's, fairies, that's the next question. <laughs> fairies are, are about nothing more than dark and ugly interior to something bright and beautiful on the outside. Yeah, and I've decided most fairy tales are death metaphors. So. <laughs> I don't know. I think, yeah, because I'm secretly just dark and bitter inside and it needs to come out somehow. I'll go with that. <laughs> He also says, as many sources as possible, I get it. Are there a few that are considered the classics, capital C? Theodora Goss, again, will have a much better list than I will. Looking at Canadian stuff specifically, because that's actually what I've got the most experience with, there's a woman named Edith Fouk, that's F-O-W-K-E, who's done a lot of secondary scholarship of Canadian folklore, and then she's also collected Canadian stories. She's a really good source. Because a lot of this is so oral, it can be difficult. There is a really good write-up of La Corriveau called La Corriveau à l'histoire et à la légende, uh, actually written by a descendant of hers, Dave Corriveau. Unfortunately, it's in French. Mm. So unless you speak French, that might be difficult. This um, is where you Canadians have an advantage against us. Well, somewhat. <laughs> My French is actually way worse than it used to be. It's appalling. Um, I had people come the other day who were like, we speak French. I was like, great. I have just enough to tell you who I am and what I'm doing, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't do this monologue in French on the fly. Oh. I'm getting off the topic. But yeah, Theodora Goss is a good person to look at. I mean, there's a lot of annotated and collected fairy tale books. I'm still a fan of the Lang fairy tales, like Andrew Lang and his collections. So those are the ones that you probably read as a kid, like the Red Fairy Book and the Blue Fairy Book. But definitely look at Dora's stuff if you're into scholarship things. Cool. Michael also asks, would you draw a distinction between fairy tale and myth, apart from time, of course? I would, actually. Myth 
I feel, operates on a lot of the same principles and structures, but on a much grander scale. Myths, as I understand them, are about gods and universes and like the entire world in a lot of ways. Even if it's just one god dealing with one person, the fact that you've got a god involved, it's cosmic. Fairy tales are much more personal and intimate in their small scale. It's the girl in the woods or it's the boy and his family, right? So I think, again, it's, it's actually a lot of the same structure and principles, but the scale at which you're working, it's, it's personal crises mm-hmm. as opposed it, to great, literally often earth shattering cataclysms. It makes me think that myth is sort of analogous to philosophy and religion while fairy tales are more like self-help and psychology a lot of the time yeah yeah no i think i think that's fair to say so yeah that's the that's the distinction i would draw he asks am i right in thinking you got quite a few affirmative responses to i just write stuff at stone coast i'm not sure what he means by that do you mean that people hated me (laughs) (laughs) or that people were also like i also just write stuff i don't know i don't know that i ever really phrased it quite that way around other stone coasters I remember with my story about La Corivo, uh, the one that, I can't even speak, Strange Horizons is publishing. I was telling Dora about it, just saying, this is the only way I can think of to write it, so I just did. And she was kind of like, yeah, (laughs) that's the way to do it. So I guess. (laughs) I'm also not quite sure what he means. (laughs) He says, no, no, that they agreed. Oh, um. I don't know, like, uh, writers are weird in general, just go with that. Um, so some of them, yeah, definitely were like, sure, I also just write stuff. Some of them agonize over it. Like, they're the, we all know those writers, right, that agonize over every paragraph. They don't ever just write something. Every sentence is like a triumph over their existential angst. Mm-hmm. It's got to have the right cadence. It's got to have the right rhythm. Yeah, and for me, I'm like, I'll figure that out later. It's fine. <laughs> And often, because I wasn't super stressed about it and it just was flowing, it actually is fine in the end without a lot of extra angst. Right. Don't overthink it. No. Right, drunk, edit sober. <laughs> literally, literally or not, I don't judge. I don't write drunk, though, because it doesn't work well. Because <laughs> I sip my beer. I'm not writing. I'm speaking. It's fine. <laughs> it was a long day at work. All right. Michael asks, Campbell or Dante? Can I say both? Because I like both. I think that's fair. Okay. Uh, I do have a soft soft spot for Joseph Campbell, though. I do like him. Like, I first started reading him when I was maybe 15. Like, I think it was in grade 10 or so. And it was kind of like having this key of, aha, all of these things I've kind of sensed about myths and fairy tales. You've just laid it out for me. (laughs) And obviously, a lot of his work comes with caveats, and it can be refined further than what he's got it. I think he... He likes the monomyth maybe a little bit too much, especially if we're looking at the heroine's journey. <laughs> but certainly, like, yeah, I, I like them both, but I've got a soft spot for them. Cool. How can people support you as an author? Where can we find your stuff? You can find most of my stuff at my site, ktbrisky.com. That's K-T-B-R-Y-S-K-I.com. Uh, reviews are nice. I like reviews. If you liked something, just even I liked it is great. So whether that's you heard the Heart Stealer audiobook and you're leaving that on Audible or um, when this thing gets up on iTunes, if you leave a review there, because that's how we grow. Indeed. Yeah. And I like hearing from people. Drop me a line. I'm on Twitter at KT Brisky. Just say hi. It's all good. (laughs) 
Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on The Raven in the Writing Desk, Katie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Hey there, folks. Chris Lester here, back in the present. I hope you enjoyed my interview with KT Brisky. I wouldn't normally have two non-story episodes this close together, but there are only two episodes left of six stories told at night, and I wanted to get this out before the finale. This story has been rocking my world, so if you like my work, you've got to go check this thing out. Huge props to Katie and to Blythe Haynes, her narrator, who is doing a phenomenal job. Now then, let's get back to business. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,414 words this week over the course of six hours for an average writing speed of 736 words per hour. As of Friday night when I'm writing this script, I've gone 81 days without breaking my chain. This past weekend, I came to the realization that I was stalled out on my Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences story. I had a decent amount of Lovecraft ambiance in the work, but the story wasn't gelling, and it didn't feel very steampunky. I still think I can make it work eventually, but I need to step back and do some more research first. Last Saturday, I went to the Madison Public Library, and I found some books that I think are going to help me. It's just a matter of finding the time to dig into them. I also watched a documentary called H.P. Lovecraft, Fear of the Unknown, which was recommended to me by Dan Sawyer. This is a really interesting film if you want to understand more about the man behind the monsters. He was a lot more complicated than the cranky, neurotic, racist caricature he's usually remembered as today. Check it out, it's worth your time. With the ministry story stalled, I went back to work on The Lost and the Least, and it felt really good to be back. The manuscript is now over 97,000 words and counting, and I'm loving all the time I get to spend with both old characters and new ones. This week was some of the fastest writing I've done in a long time, and it's always a relief when the ideas are flowing that easily. My goal is to finish the first draft of the novel by New Year's. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900. Then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To support this show and help me keep making it, make a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. The links will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. I'll be back again next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.